and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Hope you're enjoying the new redesigned subscription section for uh, Counterpunch supporters. We may have retired the print magazine after two and a half decades, but we do have all of that content and then some, and it is available on the subscription section. I believe that is going to be open for all of our subscribers through the end of the year. Check it out. It's a great way to support Counterpunch to get exclusive content, including additional podcasts. And also another way to support Counterpunch is by considering getting a t-shirt. That merchandise revenue goes directly back to Counterpunch Radio help keep this podcast going. So if you want to be even more specific in your support for Counterpunch for me and for this work, please do consider getting a t-shirt. And uh, let's see, if I have any other wares to hawk, I may do that later. But for now, let's turn to my guest today. Very happy to speak with him, somebody who I have an immense amount of respect for in terms of his analysis. Doug Henwood is on the show. Doug is a journalist. He is a contributing editor at The Nation. He's the host of the most, most critical podcast and show behind the news. You can uh, go to the website for the Left Business Observer. That's lbo-news.com for additional content from him. And for all of his exciting, hot and spicy takes, go to Twitter at Doug Henwood. Doug, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Hot and spicy, yeah. You got to keep it hot and spicy. Doug. I just had some Indian food for lunch, so I'm really ready to be hot and spicy this afternoon. Oh, let's let's make this a curry special, a lunch <laughs> yeah. special with curry. Let's do this. Well, I hope okay. that's not cultural appropriation, but yeah. well, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. All right. Um, 33% GDP reduction, Doug. That's what people have been talking about on the economic front in recent days. What does it mean? I mean, the question really is two questions. What does this mean on the larger scale for this country? And then the second question there is, does it mean anything for regular working people? Well, uh, yes. Um, the 33, um, the United States is the only country in the world, I think, that annualizes its quarter to quarter GDP changes. So the rest of the world, it would be an 8 or 10% decline. But that's still the biggest decline in uh, the history of these quarterly accounts, which goes back to 47. Uh, it matches the decline, you know, in... Um, the early years of the Great Depression, it's really a very, very steep decline. Uh, and what it reflects is that a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of activity slowed down. Uh, people stopped buying stuff. People stopped making stuff. People were afraid to go out. Uh, a lot of um, supply chains have been broken. Now, there's been somewhat of a rebound uh, in the third quarter. Um, so we've regained some of that lost ground. But, but looking at uh, the employment numbers, which are the things that matter most to the working class, We've only regained uh, like 42% of the jobs that we lost from February through April. Um, so as of July, uh, we've only gained well under half of those back. Uh, and the rate of recovery seems to be slowing. There was a bit of bounce back in the early months, uh, but now it does seem to be slowing. Uh, there are a couple of uh, services that track retail spending on a very timely day-to-day basis. Um, Opportunity Insights, which is run by the uh, economist Raj Chetty at Harvard, uh, uses uh, um, uh, credit card and debit card data to try to track retail sales day to day. That shows that uh, the, the recovery sort of stalled out in early July, and it's been heading flat to down ever since. Uh, and it makes sense, as uh, so as much of this country is still uh, suffering from uh, the plague. Um, 
people just don't want to go out. Uh, and, uh, you know, for despite all the urging of governors, uh, to, to, uh, the Republican governors in particular, Republican politicians to go out and be normal and don't wear a mask because only pussies do that. Um, most people are afraid to do these things. And uh, it shows. It's, uh, you, know, uh, you can't have a normal economy uh, in states like uh, Texas or Georgia or, or, you know, where uh, the infection numbers are still um, really, really frightening. Um, and... Uh, Whole sectors of the economy are shut down. I live under a flight, uh, the flight path to LaGuardia Airport. And right now, there happens to be a plane flying by, which is really rare. In normal times, it would be one every minute and a half or two minutes. Now they're like, you know, four or five a day. Um, so air traffic is way down. Restaurant traffic is way down. And it's going to be a long time before it recovers. Uh, there's just a whole lot of damage, a lot of bankruptcy, um, a lot of uh, anxiety, uh, a lot of businesses shut forever. Um, it's not a normal uh, business cycle by any means. It's not something that can just get get you know get back going again in a normal way. I just wanted to add to what you were saying, Doug. It's really interesting, just kind of to your point, when you look at like, say, this incredible rebound in the oil prices and the gas prices, which had collapsed several months ago into negative territory, they've come back. But when you dig deeper, that demand is industrial demand. It's most certainly not demand for jet fuel. So it's like certain sectors within sectors of the economy recovering, but others not. Yeah, I mean, people are driving again, but not like they were. Um, and, you know, gas demand is still down. So if you look at year-to-year comparisons, we're, st- we're still really in a deep hole. If you look like a month-to-month comparisons, which Wall Street loves to do, uh, we'll look like we're, you know, in a strong rebound. And certainly Trump likes to talk about those things. Trump says, you know, great job numbers when they came out last Friday. But, you know, they um, <laughs> he forgot the, fi- the, the fact of how many had disappeared in the previous months. Yeah, so um, we're still in a very deep hole, and it's just really hard to imagine how we're going to get out of it. And what's sustained things uh, to the degree they've been sustained. It has been uh, those $600 um, unemployment checks. Uh, The $1,200 one-time payments helped a lot, but what really kept the economy from completely falling off a cliff were those $600 checks, and now they've stopped. And it really looks like Congress is going to be unable to come uh, to some kind of renewal of the deal. Trump's executive order is a lot of typical um, posturing about nothing. Uh, so that's going to cause an awful lot of you know, misery for people's lives and also uh, trouble for the for the uh, the macro economy. Yeah, and just to finish up this point on the jobs numbers, Doug. I mean, the the other question that we have to really dig into when we look at these statistics is how many of those uh, jobs that were gained were gained as a let's call it through a coercive situation where somebody was forced to take a job that they didn't want that under normal circumstances they wouldn't have taken. Yeah, an awful lot of people just don't want to go back to work, and you know it's very they're, they're, uh, people like Mitch McConnell and Steve Mnuchin have made it very very clear that they want the unemployment checks to expire because they want people to be forced to go back to work. They were very clear about this. Uh, it's just like forced labor, um, leading, leading people to slaughter, basically. <coughs> Excuse me. So the other question really, and you kind of already mentioned this too, is about supply chains. And we saw this come out in a number of different ways. Of course, we saw that with the supply chain for energy. We've seen that, of course, with food. And that's been reflected with the major spike in food prices that we saw several months ago. Now, I know that economists are pointing to some level of normalization there, but can you speak to that and how that is going to impact all of these millions of people that you are correctly pointing to that are dependent upon this very meager amount of money that's going to disappear? Yeah, you know, we, we, we certainly can talk about pumping money in the economy, you know, printing it or deficit spending it, uh, borrowing it, whatever. 
But you know, there are some real problems with the real sector, as Wall Street likes to call it. Uh, they, they, these supply chains, be, it's really hard to get food processed now. Uh, truckers don't necessarily want to drive into a, an area full of disease. Uh, and then we look at longer term industrial supply chains. You know, they, um, there's a lot of talk in the business press now about shortening those, bringing a lot more production back on shore because uh, of the risks of uh, hauling goods halfway around the world uh, from China. Um, and of course, <laughs> Trump is making it really as difficult as possible to do business with China. Um, so yeah, the, all those industrial supply chains are also broken. And you know, it's nice to put cash in people's pockets, but cash is valuable only to the degree you can buy things with it. And um, there's, there's certainly, there's still some food shortages. There could be worse food shortages if this goes on much longer. Uh, and now we're talking about possibility of a really nasty you know, flu season on top of Corona coming in the fall and winter. So um, it's really, it's hard to see um, how we get off the mat at this point. Yeah, it does feel like a perfect storm of uh, circumstances here because I we didn't I don't think we really mentioned it yet although I think you alluded to it is that aside from the issue of wages and savings and salaries and all of that there is this looming question of housing and how many millions of people are going to lose their 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 housing due to evictions and probably secondarily those who might lose it to foreclosure so can you speak a little bit about what's coming in the housing market as kind of the trickle down from all of these other issues. Yeah, it looks hideous and hellish. Um, you know, I've seen estimates ranging from 25 to 40% of Americans at risk of eviction over the next couple of months. Uh, you know, just an awful lot of people not paying their rent. Um, the If you look at the mortgage delinquencies, they're actually down in the second quarter, but that was because of all the forbearance in the CARES Act. Um, so if that forbearance expires, there are going to be an awful lot of people, uh, you know, entering foreclosure too. Uh, same thing with bankruptcies. We're down for the same reason because the courts were closed. But you know, people, uh, you know, once the, if the courts reopen, people are going in there to file bankruptcy because everyone is broke. Uh, credit card delinquencies have been rising. There was no forbearance in credit cards. Student debt uh, did get some decent forbearance out of the CARES Act, so um, that uh, delinquencies went down there. But that's not going to last forever either. So we're going to have a real, real problem of possible mass homelessness on a scale we haven't seen. I don't know, maybe since the Great Depression, but it could be even bigger. If we're talking 25 to 40% of renters uh, at risk of eviction, uh, and you know, there are a sizable number of people uh, at risk of foreclosure, it's, it's, it's a, just a hideous crisis to think about. And you know, here Congress goes away and goes on recess and not coming back till uh, mid-September. It's, uh, it, it's frightening. I guess you could have some state-level uh, 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 moratoriums, but you know, this really is a national problem. We need national policies, and we're not getting them. And housing seems to be one of those areas where we can really see this widening gap of the haves and the have-nots because there are millions of homeowners who, as you said, might be facing foreclosure. And there are millions of homeowners who are sitting very, very nice with very low interest rates that they've refinanced into, taking cash out of their homes and are doing just well. So uh, we kind of see this gap that we've been pointing to for a long time, well, that leftists point, always point to, but that I think now we're seeing become a real chasm here. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, one of the things about this crisis is how much it's revealed about the underlying fissures and, and, and rot in American society. Uh, that, you know, the, the growing inequality, we've, you know, everybody's been talking about this for years now, but uh, this just made it open up even further and very, very visible. The difference between people who can sit, you know, do whatever their office jobs at home and continue to collect a paycheck versus people who um, are either unemployed because their uh, retail or, or restaurant uh, employer shut or um, are um, going to work at great risk of their lives. I and mean, they're just the, 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 um, the 
the, the polarization of society and the violence of it have just become so visible and so apparent uh, that uh, I just don't know how we can maintain any kind of semblance of you know, social stability in the coming months if we see anything like the, this level of disruption um, in, in eviction and foreclosure and homelessness and continuing unemployment and the, the end of the unemployment checks. Um, I think we have a, you know, this, the Census Bureau had been doing a weekly uh, survey of uh, whether people were getting enough food and uh, um, whether they were working or not, uh, they paused it for a few weeks to, to rejigger it, but they're going to renew it again. But, you know, it showed uh, a substantial rise in the number of people who are having problems just getting food. I mean, it was really like basic stuff. You know, we're talking food, clothing, and shelter, the basics of life, which have uh, suddenly become out of reach for um, a, a sizable portion of the society. This is not just, you know, the, the poorest five or ten percent. We're talking twenty, thirty, forty percent of the population that's really facing dire trouble right now. And this is a population, um, you know, many of whom you know couldn't come up with four hundred dollars if they had an emergency expense, as the Federal Reserve revealed in a survey last year. And now we're you know people are expected to pay the rent and keep food on the table and uh, and keep clothing on their back um, with virtually no income coming in. It's it's just it's it's a, it's a disaster of uh, without precedent in the last 80, 80, 90 years. Has COVID also revealed the one-dimensional nature of the U.S. economy? And I mean to say that with a with an economy so driven by consumption, consumer spending, etc., something like this seems to really reveal what the United States has often levied at other countries that are one-dimensional economically. So I guess the question is, is, is the U.S. economy being revealed to be much weaker in terms of its real strength than it, than it was presented to be? Yeah, a friend of mine once wanted, thought about writing a book called The Nothing-Based Economy to describe the current American uh, economy. And this was some years ago. And it seems to have been more nothing-based than ever. Um, it is interesting that among the European economies, the one that's done the worst is Britain's. Uh, and it also is the most dominated uh, of all the European economies by um, services and finance and things like that. You know, all that post-industrial crap that uh, used to be celebrated during the Clinton years and the Blair years and came into some disrepute uh, more recently. But uh, the, the, the real structure of the two economies are very similar in that regard, just based on um, what my late friend Bob Fitch used to call the hot air sector of like consultants and punditry and all that nonsense and lawyering, elite services, basically, um, and finance, and then uh, um, really low-end services, uh, the kinds of um, you know delivery services and personal services that uh, tend uh, to uh, the people in the high-end service economy. And there's not an awful lot in the middle. Uh, I remember even back in the 80s, when I was first writing about economics, uh, Business Week would occasionally do a, a cover story on the hollow economy uh, or the hollowing out of the economy. And that was the, uh, the evisceration of the good sector, the, the, the making things. Um, and uh, that's only gotten worse. We're making fewer things than ever. Uh, Trump, of course, promised to bring back the industrial economy, but it certainly hasn't come back at all. Uh, and now it's completely in the, down the drain. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the, the lack of a serious productive foundation um, is, is part of the problem here. It's just It evaporates um, because there's not much, uh, not much to it. 
Yeah, I think that's sort of typified by a story I thought, I think I, I read yesterday or the day before that Amazon has entered into negotiations with the nation's largest uh, owner of uh, retail malls, shopping malls. And apparently Amazon is looking to buy up a bunch of these shopping malls and turn them into massive multi-complex uh, fulfillment centers. So it's quite literally the physical transformation of the retail space into basically an Amazon monopoly space. Yeah, I mean, that's, this is kind of sad to me. Um, but I remember when, when Amazon first started, uh, and I was writing about with great skepticism about that whole new economy moment, the late 90s, uh, they thought they could uh, run the company uh, without any um, infrastructure at all. And now here they are with this, you know, huge um, infrastructure of warehouses and delivery networks and uh, even doing a lot of their own delivery. You see Amazon trucks in the highway now. So they did um, realize that they actually needed to own some things and, and actually engage in the physical world. But um, this virtualization of so much, I find kind of depressing. Um, you know, the, the sociability of retail, um, the sociability of office life, um, all these sorts of things are going to go away uh, as people just, you know, work from home or live at the office or whatever it is they're doing now uh, and uh, just shop entirely online. And the, the sociability of it, the kinds of things that uh, one used to celebrate about the, the capitalist city as its upside, they're all going away. And uh, I find that a, a very depressing and alienating prospect. We're just further atomization and alienation. And, uh, you know, it's not, not, not doesn't seem like a very good um, way for us to go as a society. To say nothing of all of the ways in which we, you know, spend our disposable incomes on cultural institutions, films and museums and things like that, all of which are really on life support. Yeah. I mean, the whole cultural infrastructure of the country is in really, really deep trouble. Um, and I never go to the movies, but uh, I know some people like going to the movies. And, you know, it's going to be a long time before people can go into a movie theater again either. It's just, they'll all be watching Netflix at home, I guess, or Hulu. But uh, I don't know. The sociability of, of that is, is, is sad. And uh, the, um, well, to a little bit of special pleading here, the evisceration of the, the, the journalism and media sector is really a, a terrible thing, too. The Daily News just closed its uh, New York newsroom. I mean, I don't see how you can put out a newspaper or something, even a virtual newspaper, without a newsroom. I mean, it seems like a very sociable um, uh, thing to uh, produce. You need uh, reporters and editors talking to each other and uh, uh, people walking around and doing real reporting and coming back and talking about it with their colleagues. You, you know, just Zoom is not really a very effective substitute for it. So now aside from all the economic damage, I think the cultural and social damage here is, 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 is just terrifying. It's intensifying things that are already underway, um, but uh, they were not good things. To say nothing of the impact on uh, children being quarantined. Yeah, I mean, Mike, I got a 14-year-old. He's doing fairly well, but, you know, he has, has, doesn't spend any time with his friends. And when you're 14 years old, your friends are pretty important. Uh, he loves sports. He loves playing sports. He loves watching sports. For the longest time, he didn't have any sports to watch, but, you know, he loves to play. And he finally has been playing a little baseball in the park, but, you know, the greatly reduced with all these kind of distancing mechanisms and everything. It's just, uh, you know, I just... Uh, and the poor guy, five months locked up with his parents. I couldn't imagine being 14 and spending all that time locked up with my parents.
Yeah, I got a four-year-old who's dealing with it too. So yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. All right, let's finish up on some economics before we go to the break and talk politics. Um, just want to ask you a little bit about inflation here, because if you look at some of these charts that we've seen come out recently, it looks like we are back on our normal, you know, decades-long inflationary trend after a quick backtrack uh, when the crisis hit. So I guess my question is, does that even mean anything uh, under these conditions? Does that further erode the purchasing power for a worker's wage, uh, particularly at this crucial time? Or does it just mean that we're kind of normalizing? All the numbers are very weird now. So like in the early moments of the months, of the crisis, wages rose dramatically, reported wages. But the reason for that was that all the low wage people had been laid off. So that left the high wage people who were pushing up the averages. Um, and uh, the inflation numbers are also very bizarre. You see some inflation in the food sector, but in other places you've seen deflation. The overall consumer price index for uh, July was up slightly, uh, but it's up only a percent over the year. Um, and you know, there's a lot of worry among, especially among more orthodox sorts, that all this deficit spending and the money supply has been growing at a record pace of 20 or 30 percent a year. Uh, and uh, a lot of people, of more orthodox sorts, are, are worrying that that's inflationary. But there's so much slack in the economy now that it's really hard to see how uh, you can get a really serious inflation going. Um, if you uh, drew a trend line between 1970 and 2007, and you just assume normal growth from 2007 since, we're about 30% below that trend line. Um, so we're way below the trend of where the economy would be had it continued to grow um, in line with the previous 30-some years um, after the 2008 recession. So we, we got took a very severe hit from that, uh, never really recovered uh, from, uh, from from that hit. And now we've taken an even deeper hit. So the, the economy is just like really, really slack and you know, operating way below its theoretical potential. And so that suggests that there's not a whole lot of inflationary uh, kindling out there. And uh, one other thing, uh, the IMF did a paper recently uh, looking at the history of pandemics and comparing them to wars. And uh, they went through several centuries of data and found that uh, Wars tend to be inflationary and pandemics tend to be deflationary uh, and that pandemics tend to be good for wages. So if we could hold on, maybe there's some good news in the wage front. Yeah. Hey, bring on the next pandemic then, right? Right. Yes. <laughs> It's like the Miami Beach diet of wage wage growth. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to just ask you very quickly also about the way that we should understand uh, some of these trends, because it seems that as we saw after 2008 and the 2008 crisis, that although we did see a jobs rebound, the jobs, the, the high wage jobs never really came back. And many of those were then converted into like, say, multiple low wage jobs. Are we going to see a similar trend this time, but maybe on steroids where many people, including millennials who are now in their 30s, who are looking for professional managerial class type work, who are basically going to be trapped in low wage jobs in perpetuity? Well, you know, um, people with college degrees um, still earn a lot more than people without them. Um, that wage premium persists. They're more, left, far less likely to be unemployed. Um, so the idea that the college, typical college grad um, before this crisis hit was just, you know, Pulling cappuccinos at a, at a uh, in, in, in a cafe. Um, 
That's not entirely true, um, but um, there certainly is a proliferation of low-wage jobs. Um, again, even before this crisis hit, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, pro- uh, uh, projections for the next decade, the, the decade that we're not going to see because of this crisis, but uh, the decade we would have seen, and they showed most of the job growth was going to be in fairly low-wage, low-skilled um, um, lines of work. Uh, there would be um, some things for very high-end people. Um, so uh, as I recall, if you looked at the numbers, uh, what uh, you saw, the middle um, entering uh, emptying out in the years after the 2008-2009 recession, um, some recovery at the high end and uh, uh, quite a lot of low-wage jobs. So I, I imagine that's the trend we may see uh, reassert itself. That is, uh, uh, some people at the high end doing well, uh, more people entering the low end, and uh, very few people finding, you know, kind of mid-level, solid, um, what used to call, you know, middle-class jobs. Before COVID, there was a lot of talk in the uh, economics world and among analysts and so forth that uh, what we were witnessing was the period that would lead up to the next bubble crash, the next bubble bursting. And many had predicted that that bubble would be in, in, in debt and specifically maybe even corporate debt, although that's not the only kind of debt that was uh, setting off alarm bells. So my question really is now that COVID has happened and the deck has been reshuffled in this way, what do we make of the situation with debt, corporate debt, and are we still teetering on the brink of a debt crisis? Well, one of the things that happened after the 2008-2009 uh, melodrama was that households really got shy about debt. Households really reduced their debt levels very steadily uh, until um, this crisis hit. Uh, so the, the, the leveraging of the household sector got back down to like 2000 or 1998 levels. So it was really quite a reversal of that. And on paper, at least, the household sector looked fairly um, solvent. Of course, there are many households themselves are not solvent at all, but that's what that's what the averages look like. So that made me think that if we did have a debt problem, it wasn't going to be like the one of 2008, uh, which was concentrated in the household sector, household uh, mortgages particularly. Um, but uh, businesses uh, had been um, just going crazy with debt, uh, non-financial businesses mostly. Um, they uh, were borrowing a lot of money to buy back their own stock. A lot of companies uh, devoted all their earnings and then some to buying uh, their own shares to boost their price. A whole bunch of companies then, uh, when this crisis hit, found themselves really out of cash. So the whole airline industry had been buying up its, its own stock like crazy. Boeing had been doing that. Uh, a bunch of others have been uh, doing the same thing, and uh, then they needed emergency um, help from from the Federal Reserve or, or the the the, bear, the 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 fiscal bailout that came from Congress. And the, the, the we bought some time with that, um, but uh, now I think that time is uh, all, all the all the debts are starting to come due. Uh, the time we bought is up, um, so we're going to see. Um, some really serious corporate debt problems asserting themselves unless something is done <coughs> dramatically to avert it in the coming months. There's going to be a lot of corporate bankruptcies. I think there were, there's already been an uptick in corporate bankruptcies, but I think it's only beginning. The banking sector looks pretty good, but then there are all these like kind of uh, um, weird financial system, uh, um, entities outside the banking system, you know, hedge funds, and private equity that may have uh, a whole lot of time bombs lurking within that we're going to find out about when... Uh, if um, if corporations start going bankrupt, the entire fracking sector is a disaster. Um, they they borrowed tons of money 
uh, never really made a profit. And uh, now, um, you know, they're just up to their ears in debt and uh, there's the, the price and demand isn't there. So the, the fracking sector is in very serious trouble. Trump wants to bail it out, of course, because his good friend Harold Hamm is a, a leading fracker. But uh, yeah, that sector is, uh, is, is in, in terrible shape. Um, you know, just going forward, though, there are several sectors that are in terrible shape that we should really think about putting out of business or radically downsizing uh, as, a, as a matter of uh, policy. One, of course, is that fracking sector, you know, really put an end to that crap. Um, the airline sector, we fly way, way, way too much. It's extremely, you know, diametric to the climate. It's really a good thing to be, have many, many fewer airplanes. The cruise industry, another one that's, you know, really in deep trouble. Uh, that is filthy and, and destructive and shouldn't exist either. So it'd be really nice if we could use that crisis to get rid of those guys and Re- reconfigure our energy and transportation sector to something more sustainable. Um, this is a good opportunity to do that, but uh, we don't have the political leadership to do it. Final question on that before we go to the break. What does corporate debt crisis mean for working people? I mean, who cares if uh, if a real ta- if a retail chain goes out of business or who cares if a whole sector that you have nothing to do with goes out of business? Can you help us understand how it's interconnected? Well, the retail sector is a really big employer. Um, it's you know scores of millions of people work in the retail sector, uh, and for every retail chain that goes under, that means a lot of people lose their jobs. Um, that means the people who you know, sell the lunches to the retail sector are going to go out of business, you know, and then uh, it just means general general contraction of activity for everyone. Uh, and then uh, if uh, the banks uh, start having trouble because um, uh, businesses that go under can't pay their loans, then when the banks go under, uh, everything uh, gets into trouble. I mean, the, every, everything goes through the banking system. And if uh, almost all economic activity has to go through a bank at some point, and if that, that goes under, then the, 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 much of the rest of the economy seizes up. So, yeah, you can say, you know, good riddance, corporate titan, but uh, it takes out a lot of damage with it. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, Doug and I will talk some politics. I know you've never heard any guys talk politics before. (laughs) We'll do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Go get a t-shirt while you're waiting. We'll be back.
back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Doug Henwood. Listen to the show, Behind the News. It makes you smarter, and it also gives you talking points to use as weapons against your enemies. Uh, you can also find his work in The Nation and on Twitter at Doug Henwood. Uh, Doug, politics time. Uh, everybody's talking about the election, of course. I'm not really all that interested in talking about Biden's selection of Kamala Harris, although we can if you want to. I'm more interested- It's transformative, in- man. Aren't you up to this? Oh, yes. But transformative is the word I was looking for as well. Um, But I want to ask you a little bit about all of the nervous talk uh, in the media, of course, about Trump and about the election and potentially questioning the legitimacy. He's certainly flown these trial balloons with various statements, whether or not you think there's anything behind them or not. Now we're mired in uh, what seems like transparent attempts to sabotage the Postal Service in an attempt to suppress the vote. I want to get your take on all of this surrounding the election, whether or not this is noise, and how you read where we're going in the next couple of months. You know, for the first three years or so, I tried to avoid getting wrapped up in Trump hatred. I thought it was just um, a liberal disease and um I found it kind of amusing sometimes to see how much people, as my friend Jody Dean said, people were in love with their hatred of Trump. I don't know. Something happened to me in the last few months. I've joined the hate Trump brigade. I just can't stand it. He's driving me crazy. And this stuff with the post office is absolutely outrageous. I was just reading a story in Vice about uh, how they're dismantling the sorting machines and throwing them in the dumpster. I mean, this is just outrageous. Um, they're, they're really re- sharply reducing the population of sorting machines, across, post offices across the country. Uh, they're removing mailboxes. Um, it's, just, uh, it's just outrageous that, I mean, the combination of trying to suppress the mail-in vote, plus, obviously, this is part of a privatization agenda. They want people to hate the post office and be relieved to see it privatized. And the post office is a really essential national resource. And... Uh, I don't want to get all uh, misty-eyed about the Constitution. It's a terrible document in a lot of ways. But, you know, it is something that's authorizing the Constitution and the founding of the country that is, you know, seen as really essential to its governance. And to see this war on the Postal Service um, in what is a a mix of, um, obviously, um, petty self-interest on Trump's part about getting reelected because he probably has a sense that he might not if he doesn't uh, do his best to suppress votes. And uh, the, the privatization agenda um, uh, that uh, who FedEx or UPS or whoever else wants to pick up the post office, um, the combination of, of the anti-democratic move and the naked self-enrichment, it's just, it's revolting. I mean, just, I can't, I can't stand it anymore. I really just, this guy has to go. I know, I know, I feel like I'm violating everything I ever believed in um, by, by saying that, but um, God, I just can't take it anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, the question of uh, wanting Trump gone is not necessarily synonymous with uh, supporting Biden or the Democrats or any. Yeah, he's the only other guy we got, though. You know, it's, yeah, it's a mere, it's a mere, it's a mere recognition of reality. And I'm not even going to touch this lesser evil question that we have to uh, shove into our brains every four years. But the the issue to me really comes down to whether or not there is any infrastructure to resist what might happen in November if we have a close election, because I think it's fairly clear that if there is a close election, it's going to be contested and the contesting of this election is going to be on a scale far more uh, uh, destructive and turbulent than anything we saw in 2000. Uh, so I guess what I'm what I'm really asking is, is how do you see this playing out if we have a close election? Well, you know, you mentioned 2000, and uh, Jane McAlevey was down there uh, in Florida um, during that election period, and she watched um, the Democratic uh, establishment and uh, the AFL-CIO leadership send people home. They deliberately did not want people to kick up a fuss over those election results. I am concerned that if there is a whole lot of um, fraud going on around this election or just really messy stuff, that uh, the Democrats who, you know have a real instinct for the capillaries sometimes, um, don't, uh, aren't, aren't going to fight it very hard. So yeah, if, if we're, we're relying on the Democratic Party to provide the infrastructure of, of, to fight a, a fraudulent or smelly election, then uh, I, I, yeah, we're in trouble. Um, so it's going to take real popular mobilization. I would love to see popular mobilization now around the, the post office. And then, you know, some, this is kind of arcane and geeky, but the census, you know, the census, uh, they're they're really trying to suppress the results of the census, so they undercount immigrants and uh, people in complicated places like New York City, because you know we vote the way the Republicans don't like. So I mean, there really another constitutionally mandated activity of government that's being um, corrupted and undermined by the self-interest, the naked political self-interest of Trump and his, his comrades. Um, th- these are just outrageous anti-democratic things with really profound long-term consequences. And it'd be great to see people out in the street. I mean, I just I thought it was inspiring to see people out in the street fighting cop violence. Uh, you know, something like 30 million Americans uh, were told Gallup that they had, or not, 30, not personally, but the equivalent in a survey of 30 million Americans uh, told Gallup that they had, had attended at least one demonstration. I mean, that was inspiring, moving stuff. I would like to see some of that action around what's going on um, with these um, assaults on um, basic democratic rights. Uh, and I really I almost find myself turning into some kind of liberal proceduralist, but the, the abuse of, of um, it's normal technocratic governance um, is, is, is frightening at this point. It really seems like it's, it's authoritarian uh, and, and corrupt, and uh, um, it's going to be really hard to recover from it if, if, if it's allowed to go on. So I'm, I'm really concerned. I think we really need a very large popular mobilization, uh, and um, I'm certainly in no position to make it happen, but uh, there are other people who are more skilled, more skilled organizers than I am, and I wish they would really uh, get on that task. Well, it comes back to the F word, doesn't it? Fascism, because I th- I don't remember, Doug, if you and I got into it over this question several years ago, but I got into it with a bunch of people back in 2016 and 2017 about Trump and whether fascist was the right word to describe him and, and to describe what we were witnessing, etc. And without rehashing all of those debates now, which are somewhat not 
terribly interesting or important. Uh, it does raise this question about the, the deliberate hollowing out of institutions, uh, of state institutions, which is a hallmark of fascism, as Jason Stanley talked about on this show and in his book, uh, How Fascism Works, that this deliberate destruction of the institutions of, and I vigorously air quote, liberal democracy, quote unquote, uh, this is a hallmark of fascism. And I think that you're right to point to the fact that the damage that they're doing is going to have repercussions for generations to come far beyond just the uh, discursive implications of fascist politics. Yeah, I also um, had mixed feelings about using that word. Um, I'm not sure whether it's an advance in precision to use the word or what uh, what it helped us either analytically or politically, but uh, there's certainly a deep authoritarian streak in Trump. I mean, but it's, it's all personal with him. Um, you know, it's not like he doesn't have a necessarily a coherent political philosophy like the, the Nazis did. Okay. We've seen the tactics that have been employed. We saw what they were doing on the streets of Portland. We've seen uh, in, in other cities as well, certainly a little bit of that in New York, although New York is somewhat of a special case. Um, what's the point here? I mean, is the point is the point to deliberately instigate civil, uh, you know, social conflict here as a means of creating this chaotic backdrop for the election? I know some people. We talked about it last week on this show. Some people have been floating the theory that the whole point of sending the feds to Portland was solely to make these viral videos that he can then use in the election campaign to show American cities on fire, et cetera, et cetera. What's the point? Of all of this, Doug, how do you read it? Well, this is one of the uh, the issues I had with like making too much of Trump and also using the word fascism because you know the Portland Police Bureau has shown itself plenty brutal over the years. The NYPD is perfectly capable of being very brutal on its own without uh, needing any federal assistance. So, to some degree, that was not that much of a departure from normal. But then, on the other hand, um, there is, I guess, you know, Trump has a long, there's an awful lot of continuity in Trump, but that is a turn for the worse. I guess that's the way I keep putting it, that, um, you know, there was an awful lot of bad crap going down earlier, but it's, it's definitely a turn for the worse. And I think that's what the, that, that move of the, the federal cops into Portland was like. It was, um, the Portland police were plenty brutal, but then these guys came in with a, an additional level of brutality. Uh, and then like, not having any um, names or insignia or just pulling people off the streets and throwing them into unmarked vans. That's terrifying stuff. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it was maybe to make um, TV ads. I don't really understand exactly what it was. I, Trump also just likes the grand gesture. He wants to like say, I am, I'm taking over here. I'm going to take care of this. And uh, so I think there was some of that too, just his, his exercise of his personal magic over, the, uh, over what he saw as disorder. Uh, it didn't really work as uh, planned. I don't think uh, that, uh, that he uh, saw any uh, increase in his approval rating because of it. I don't think most people uh, sympathized with uh, the, um, the federal cops, um, aside from his hardcore supporters. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's hard to say whether he's just, like, just trying to create a federal police force in some kind of really Hitlerian way or whether it was just uh, showmanship. It's really hard to tell with him. Um, and you know, um, another thing, why another problem with calling him fascist is, you know, what he doesn't have a movement necessarily behind him. It's not organized the way the Nazi party was or the Italian fascist party was. Um, the, um, the Republican party is, you know, an institution, but it's very divided. Um, 
uh, it's, it's just not a disciplined force like the uh, the Nazi Party was. So I don't know. It's it's calling it fascist. Um, uh, I'm not sure whether that's accurate, but on the other hand, it's really hideous and dangerous. And uh, whether the intent was uh, just to create TV ads or to to jack up the level of repressions. Neither of those things is very good. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, it doesn't seem like it's really going to work. Uh, this is not 1968. Uh, the, the, the public is just not um, sympathetic with the, the law and order crackdown in the way it was in 1968. So the, the, you know, people are, 1968 was the end of the cornucopia of American prosperity. People felt pretty good then. Uh, and now people are you know, depressed and sick and anxious and alienated in ways that they weren't. Um, 50 some years ago. So again, it's not going to have the same effect that it, that, that it did then. I wonder about that, Doug, because I, I, in general, I agree with you. And certainly the, at the, you know, aerial view level, uh, the numbers would back that up. But when you look at the 30 to 40% of the country that supports Trump, that could be called Trump's base, they are doing mostly well. I mean, they are mostly uh, still engaged in, you know, the, the prosperity doctrine. They are petty bourgeois. We've talked about this the last several weeks uh, on this show that, you know, the, the myth of the poor white working class, you know, Trump supporter, although they exist, it's certainly not the bulk of his support. The bulk of his support is people who are doing mostly okay. Uh, so, I guess my question is for them, law and order and this all, all of this sort of fascistic rhetoric and whatever that's going to work is the question then whether that group that is not doing as well, whether they will respond to it. And I, I think it's an open question. Yeah, I think, you know, people, people use the, the, the term Trump's base rather recklessly. Um, there are a bunch, several kinds of people voted for him. Just um, the the uh, the proverbial displaced machinist on the you know the Great Lakes um, that's that's one um, but that wasn't really what elected him what elected him was traditional Republican voters uh, in the suburbs who just care about tax cuts and deregulation and don't really like black people very much that's you know the real core of the base and a lot of it is you say as you say petty bourgeois they're um, uh, run small businesses most of them I don't think they're even professional class most of the professional <coughs> professional class now is sort of centrist Democrat. And an awful lot of the better off suburbs are also you know, that kind of centrist Democrat. Suburban women really do not like Trump at all. He's pushing this, uh, Joe Biden's going to send black people into your, your sacred suburb line. I don't think that's really, um, that's not really hitting its target. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, but that, that 30% or so, that's really very religious, very petty bourgeois, um, and uh, uh, very racist. I mean, that's... Um, that's the kind of people that respond to that stuff. Whether they're enough to determine uh, Trump's fate uh, is another question. I don't think that uh, that 30%, and it does seem to be about 30%, you know, he gets 40, 42% approval rating. Um, but, you know, the real hardcore people um, just adore the man. And, uh, uh, but you know, they are, they're a minority. Um, and uh, the, I, I don't think that that kind of, that kind of message is really succeeding beyond um, beyond that hardcore. I I really like the fact that earlier in our conversation, you 
sort of shuddered at your own at your own comment saying that you're beginning to sound like a liberal (laughs) which really made me laugh while i was on mute and so let me ask you to put on your liberal proceduralism hat here or maybe you know 10 gallon hat and ask you uh so mr liberal proceduralist what is a constitutional crisis in the united states look like a lot of liberals are talking about it on the uh, the various uh, mouthpieces of liberal intelligentsia like MSNBC and so forth, talking about if he doesn't leave and a constitutional crisis and all of this. But uh, let's 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 take off that liberal hat for a second and put back on our Marxist hat. What does a constitutional crisis in the U.S. look like under these conditions? Well, that's a very good question, and I have to say that um, the proceduralism I hadn't been thinking about that too much until my good friend Leo Panitch, the political scientist from Toronto. Uh, brought it up. Uh, he said that uh, that Trump is really um, by by attacking proceduralism and like you know, norms of accountability and such. It's really an attack on democracy itself. And you know, you can, we can call it modified bourgeois democracy. Leo would do that. I would do that. But it's certainly. Bourgeois democracy is better than no democracy at all. And uh, that's why I think the attack on proceduralism um, really does matter and why people, um, radicals, uh, Marxists and otherwise, should be concerned about it. But um, the uh, um, what would a constitutional crisis look like? It's hard to say. I mean, you know, somebody was saying something on, on Facebook that effect earlier today, and I, I guessed uh, how many divisions has the Constitution? I mean, so much of the Constitution and depends upon um, people playing along with it, uh, and that the kind of challenge that Trump represents may show that uh, there's not a whole lot of resilience in the system. That um, uh, Dan Lazaro has argued um, in his uh, um, book, The Frozen Republic, uh, among other things, that uh, the, the people. Uh, liberals had come to depend on the Constitution so much to defend um, basic rights and basic norms that that led to a political atrophy. That you know, let's, the Constitution will take care of it. It's, it was, it's almost given this magical uh, power of life and, uh, and uh, um, uh, ability to preserve democracy. Um, and uh, I don't know what will happen if Trump says no, I'm not leaving. Will the Secret Service just haul him out of the office? I presume, but you know, just at this point, you just don't know. He doesn't really have the loyalty of the military. It's really hard to you know for, uh, to see Trump mounting a coup. I think the military doesn't like him very much, and uh, he's just used them as a prop and um, and uh, not not showing them any serious respect. Um, but you know, I don't know. Does he have enough loyalists and? It, among police, I don't know. I mean, is there like is there a basis? And uh, say, say he does lose and, and leaves office, what will his supporters do? Will they form militias? Um, it's quite possible. I mean, you know, we've seen uh, a lot of uh, police forces around the country are deep, deeply in love with Trump, really deeply authoritarian. You know, there's a striking contrast between the cops and the army. Um, civilian control of the military is an amazing political achievement. Now, they have the guns, yet they always follow orders. Like, how did that happen? It's, it's an interesting story in itself, but it seems like the cops, you cannot control cops. No mayor can t- control the cops, and uh, they seem to just run themselves. Uh, watching Bill de Blasio in New York just completely surrender to the police now has been a re- remarkable thing. He came into office, he was going to like humanize him somewhat. I didn't really have much ho- much hope for de Blasio. I always thought he was a numbskull, but... Um, he did come into office like acting as if he wanted to get the NYPD under some kind of civilian control. He just given up entirely. They, they do whatever they want to. Um, and I think that's true of 
police forces around the country, big cities and small towns. Um, so, you know, there's a potential for some kind of real militia developing there if, if, uh, if things get ugly. Um, that's what a constitutional crisis could look like. I mean, it's, you know, talk about civil war. I don't know. It just, it's, it, everything seems to be falling apart. I mean, the country has been rotting for a long time, but the, 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 the depth, the, the rot has gotten faster and deeper, and it's really, really frightening. I don't know where it's going to go, it's, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere good. It seems that we often think about these kinds of questions with regard to other countries, but in thinking about something like this happening in the United States, there doesn't seem to be an obvious frame of reference, you know, a, a reference point to look at what what would actually happen and what this would look like. And I guess the follow-up question to that, and I realize this is a very general question, but I like to make it hard for you, Doug, is um, what's a failed state? And is the U.S. a failed state? Well, it's sure looking like one. I mean, you look at uh, the uh, the response to this pandemic, um, the uh, the erosion of the public health infrastructure. Um, it accelerated under Trump, but it had been going on for at least a decade before. Uh, there were you know, all the austerity um, in state and local government levels uh, that came after the 2008 crisis. Um, you know, just the ability to do basic state functions like public health have eroded terribly. Uh, the, um, the, the insanity of our healthcare system, healthcare finance system, fully revealed by this crisis. Uh, uh, just the, and the underlying illness of so much of the population, the underlying ill health of so much of the population, uh, and the absolute erosion of state capacity to do anything but kill people. The only portions of the state that uh, have been um, remained you know, sort of in good health, it seems, are the, the military and the police. All the other beneficial things on the civilian side have been uh, eroded terribly, um, either through neglect or by conscious design. Uh, and uh, to, um, to to have responded to this disease so badly, uh, certainly at, at the federal level, um, obviously Trump's failings are obvious, but you know, a lot of states uh, and localities have been also done very badly. Uh, Mario, uh, Mario, Andrew Cuomo, you know, uh, has been getting good reviews for his um, uh, response to the uh, the pandemic uh, in recent months, but the early reaction was terrible, way too late. Uh, lots of people died needlessly. Uh, the, the mayor of New York City, um, equally stupid and incompetent. But, you know, multiply that by governors around the country telling people to go back to work and all this. It's just nothing really seems to work. And um, this is the, to some degree, you know, the poisonous fruit of decades of neoliberalism, which the state sector has been uh, starved and maligned. Um, and then, you know, the acceleration that Trump represents. Um, but yeah, it just like the basic functions of, of, of the state and uh, the competence of the political class have, have rotted so badly. And I've been, for years now, I've been talking about writing a book on the, the rot of the American ruling class. And I just have uh, lacked the discipline really to get serious and get and actually write the thing. But it's, it's a rich topic because we do seem to be rotting from the head. Indeed. Final question. Um, and this kind of relates back to what we've been talking about. And you were just mentioning a few minutes ago about, you know, whether or not we should call it fascism or not, and the crisis that we may be heading to and what that might look like. And I have a scenario in my mind that really terrifies me in a lot of ways. It's one I've been talking about for several years, but seems to be coming into focus. And that is, as we were talking about, Doug, a contested election 
right in which the obviously you know the the the, the various camps have their entrenched beliefs and whatever but if trump ultimately loses this election you not only have this his his regular base and this uh you know this militia movement but now you have this q cult and this is millions of people who believe that donald trump is quite literally breaking up an international cabal of child pedophiles and satan worshipers (laughs) this is an unhinged ideology that actually has millions of adherents whether or not you care how many people are following it on facebook it's millions of people Okay, if these people who are many of them are absolutely nuts, if and 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 religious too, and armed (laughs) and and armed. Well, that's exactly where I'm going, Doug, is that the line between the three percenters and the Oath Keepers and the militia groups and, you know, all of these gun toting people in Idaho and Washington and wherever else, the line between them and the uh, child pedophile obsessed Q cult member is becoming blurred. And when those two things kind of merge, which they already are in a sense, you do have yourself a fascist movement. Yeah. Oh, now that's that's a frightening thought. It's very, very possible. And uh, I think what is it? Something like close to fifty uh, Republican congressional congressional candidates in, in the last couple of years have been Q uh, supporters. Um, so you know, it's really gotten deep into the uh, the Republican Party, um, not just uh, not just fringe people on Facebook. Um, yeah, it's it's a frightening prospect, and um, I don't know. Maybe people on the left, people on the left, should take up uh, <coughs> um, take up shooting. Um, I had somebody on my radio show uh, a few months ago who wrote an article for Harper's uh, on his experience with the, the Socialist Rifle Association, um, and uh, I don't know. You know, might might be time to take up self defense. Uh, I, not it's not for me personally, but if someone else would want to do that, um, I could completely understand it because things could get really, really ugly. Uh, and if we this, you know, the, the economy continues to be a wreck, and uh, the election turns out in ways that that crew doesn't like, we we could have real trouble in our hands. And you know, there are people who are saying like Biden is going to be some kind of FDR figure, um, which is really, really, really hard to imagine. Although you know, FDR himself ran on a fairly conservative platform and then delivered the New Deal, so. You know, I suppose anything is possible, but it's really a stretch to imagine um, somebody as mediocre as Biden um, actually becoming um, the FDR of our time. But that, you know, that's the only thing we I could think of that could counter um, that that kind of these these forces of, of decay is some kind of real effort to rebuild the physical and social infrastructure of the country and to avert climate disaster. And uh, if we don't have that, if we just have a, a return to some kind of technocratic uh, nostalgia for the Clinton years um, or the Obama years. Um, that, that's certainly a very weak antidote to the kinds of fury that the uh, heavily armed Q brigade could mount. So it's dark. You know, I'm, sometimes uh, my wife gets annoyed when I say this, but sometimes I'm glad that I'm not younger than I am because um, I can't say the future looks terribly bright. Wonderful to hear you say that as I clutch my two young children close to me. And well, you know, my, I got a shot. On the other hand, you know, we've got you know, the word socialism is entered the re-entered the U.S. political vocabulary. You know, DSA is making a big splash in a lot of local elections. So there is, it's not hopeless. Um, uh, young people, there are an awful lot of uh, really uh, inventive, resourceful, motivated young people. Uh, I full of admiration for. So I, you know, I shouldn't get, let my pessimism take me away into a very dark spot, but sometimes that's the path of least resistance. We must all find our heart of darkness. So says Doug Henwood. (laughs) 
we shall leave it there. Doug is a uh, the host of Behind the News. You can get him on Twitter at Doug Henwood, lbo-news.com. Of course, all the con- all the stuff at The Nation as well. Doug is a gentleman and a scholar, and I thank you so much for coming on the show, Doug. Thanks for having me, Eric. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support. Do get on Counterpunch. Do get that subscription. We will talk next week.